welcome to episode four of Something to Eat and Something to Read, a podcast for people who love reading and cooking and reading about cooking. Brought to you by me, food writer Sophie Hansen and bibliotherapist, psychotherapist Jermaine Lees. And today's episode is sponsored by our very own books, mine, In Good Company. And mine, Reading the Seasons, <laughs> Books Holding Life and Friendship Together by me and Sonia Sakalakis. And both Sophie and my books are available from good bookstores everywhere. So today's episode is a little bit different, isn't it, Sophie? Mm. We're not really in the chair this time, (laughs) but we're still talking about reading, but we're still obviously talking about writing and food. It's a special episode where Sophie gets to talk to Sarah Winman, author of Tin Man um, that we spoke about in episode two, but most recently Still Life, which as we also have spoken about, is set in Florence and uh, describes you beautifully uh, Tuscan cuisine and to sit alongside that I'm also talking to Emiko Davies who is a food writer and became a food consultant for Sarah on this book. It's a job I never knew existed mm-hmm. and I find absolutely fascinating. Mm, I'd actually like that job. I think I might start <laughs> um, looking around. No, I think it's quite a particular particular arrangement between two incredibly clever women. So, yeah, I was really, really excited and quite nervous actually to speak to Sarah because I um, hold her in very high regard as a writer. And I was very grateful that she gave us so much time. We talked a lot about how the story for Still Life found her. Um, we talked about the role of food and nourishment in her books and just all the emotions around eating and what an emotional thing cooking actually is. Um, so um, yeah, I, let's just go straight to that interview. I really, really enjoyed speaking with her and I'm sure you will enjoy hearing all that she has to say. you choose Florence for the setting for still life what is it somewhere you've always been no not at all no 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 it it chose me um so I was there in 2015 and I was there as a as a mini holiday before I did all the publicity for Marvellous and Mm -hmm. and I previously I'd just done a a terms course on basic renaissance art at the National Gallery and I thought this is great I can be in Florence in January um and it was it was brilliant because it, you get so much more for your money um, mm. and no one's there. And, and then I, and so I had, I was there, it's no intention of writing uh, a book on Florence because my next book, I knew what it was going to be anyway, which was Tin Man. I'd been contracted to do that. And then I was, as I said, I was in a restaurant coming to the end of lunch and I looked at them on the walls and I noticed these photographs, but, but I really stopped because I was alone and I realized it was the city of Florence um, underwater, very clearly underwater. And I'm thinking, well, when was this? I don't remember anything about that. So I got talking to uh, the owner and he brought out books. And then he said, this was the flood of, of, 19, of November 1966. I went, oh, right, okay. And then he went and told me about these, the volunteers who came to the city, and predominantly these young men and women who, excuse the pun, I was just about to say, it's not a pun at all, but the wording <laughs> literally flooded into the city, who amassed rather in the city, um, with the sole desire to clean up art, which was incredibly damaged. 14,000 movable pieces of art were severely damaged and 
you know, copious churches infrastructure. And also, you know, that's the that's the art. But then you think about the people and what happened to the city and, and many were de delivering food to older people. So these young people, because there was um, a, a ton of mud, a ton of mud left behind after the floodwaters receded for every citizen. And it wasn't just mud, it was, you know, it was sewage and oil mm. and mm. Uh, carcass remnants. And, and, and they became known as mud angels or angels of mud, these young people. And many of them stayed and then they fell in love. And I was like, ah, oof, that's when story and me collided. Oh. Um, and so that was when I was thinking, okay, it's so romantic. You know, it's the 60s. Of course, people would have this kind of civic sense of responsibility and duty and, and wanting to help because um, it's only 20 years after the war the ending of the war this would be the generation mm -hmm. after their parents generation you know who mm -hmm. the children mm -hmm. of the parent uh, of the generation who were at war so you know all of these things it, it, it stayed with me and then I proceeded to spend about three years trying not to write that book which is what I usually do because it's too daunting. <laughs> and I think, does the world need another book on Florence? Which I kept answering, no, certainly not. Um, it needed this one. Then, well, I don't know. Well, oh, I don't know. Well, obviously, I mean, I didn't, there's no, I suppose the only thing I'm lucky about, so there's a bit of luck and a bit of fear, is that I only have one story, which usually comes after the last one. And some of the themes squeeze through and I'm just getting better to write those themes. So I don't have lots of stories. I can't ever think, oh, damn, I wrote the wrong one. It's not how it works. There is only one. And what that means is sometimes I have great periods of, of, of kind of emptiness, creative emptiness, which isn't, sounds awful, but I, I mean, the focus isn't there on a book. So there's lots of other things going on, but, the, but I don't have that story yet. So I did, I tried to push this book away and it wouldn't leave me. So then I started to read around different things and other people's bibliographies and getting ideas. And then, and then started to find my way of, ah, oh, okay, I could write it like this. And, and maybe that would be interesting for me. So that's, that's mm. sort of how that came about. Wow. Well, it's Absolutely fascinating. And that the way you wrote The Flood and Ulysses and his globes, I just, um, I reread that section a couple of times because it just was so beautiful. So thank you for, well, I'm glad that you wrote the book. I'm glad you didn't let it slip away from you. <laughs> no, well, Emiko helped me a huge amount with The Flood mm. as a reminder because I was oh, reading okay. um, research books and they, they were giving the wrong time. So the original version of the flood was very, very, I mean, it's visual anyway, but it was stark colors and contrasts. And she, and she reminded me that, that it was, it's still pretty dark by 7.15 in Florence, yeah. November. So, and, yeah. and the area that I was talking about was probably flooded, it was underwater already by five. So it would have been by, I'm talking about three and four in the morning, it would have been pitch black. And it was like, great, she did remind me of that because then, then I could sort of rework it and it would be, you know, it would, it, it, it would have another element. There would be the fear of, of this happening in, in total darkness. So, yeah, she's all around mm. good. Yeah, well, yes, she is. And, I mean, what I really wanted to talk to you today about was food and how you write food into your books. But I also have to say that our book club is doing Still Life next week. We're all gathering Amazing. to talk about it. And I, I told the girls I was chatting to you and they've all messaged me all these questions. You must ask Sarah this. But we might if we've got time, I'll come back to those. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But what I wanted good. to really ask you um, about was, I mean, I, I love food and that's what I write about 
Um, and so I'm always particularly on high alert for mentions of meals, shared meals and tables and food in, in books. And yours in particular um, resonate with me. And I wanted to ask you what, what role does food and the preparation of food and descriptions of meals play in your writing? I mean, they seem to be really important moments in the book. Is it something you enjoy writing about as well? Yeah, I do. But I don't, I mean, I don't think too much beforehand of how I'm going to write a book. So it comes out of a situation and they often come out of an mm. emotional situation. So for instance, if we were talking about Tin Man where Ellis is, is at a low point and the neighbor comes out mm. with a cup of coffee. So what it is, oh, it's the, these cinematic low points which can be heightened by someone else's generosity. So the kindness of strangers, which I do believe exists because I've, I've had that myself. And the role that that gesture plays in making somebody feel less alone in the world. And, and that would also serve as a moment of memory for him. And I suppose for, if I'm using that as an example, um, I think I write that it was good coffee so it was real coffee. So we're going back mm. what 20 odd years that there was also significance that the fact that this young man had had got coffee granules and had probably put it in a cafetiere, you know. So it, it's a heightened, mm. it was the fact that he didn't just give him a coffee, he came out and gave him a good cup of coffee, which means that the gesture is heightened because he spent time and he wanted to give him the best quality coffee in this in, in this instant that he could mm. and Ellis knew that from the taste and I think it's those particular moments that I like the act of food and drink being obviously uh, maintaining life um, as as an act of love an act of generosity and also I think I write that food makes somebody feel the act of being given food because that's, I think, what we're talking about, really, mostly, the, you know, the act mm. of sometimes feasting, but generally it's about being given food, is it, it makes you in that moment feel more than your circumstance. And I think that's mm. really important because we've, we've all had those moments. I mean, I can talk very freely about my own life with that. You know, I was very lucky that I didn't grow up in poverty. You know, there was always a meal for me and my brother. You know, my parents provided that. They had the means to provide that. Um, and so the only time I probably would have felt more, you know, occasionally hungry or not having enough was when I was a young adult. You know, those moments where you sort of have left home and you don't know what to do. You don't know how to manage money, you know. And, you know, sometimes you do go back home because I also had the, the freedom to be able to go back home and say I'm starving or can you buy me food or you know but there were moments where I didn't mm. you know we all try and mm. do our mm. own thing and um I just remember those moments I remember them as a young actress uh being with other you know actors and stuff and and we was just decided we'd, we could go out for a drink and literally we would get out all the money in our pocket and we would put it on the table and and that's how our drink would go that night and I still remember those moments because because it's tricky to create magic sometimes when you don't have enough and that's why mm. when I sort of see what, what 
parents do who really don't have enough and how so, and you learn the story from children afterwards as they become adults and they, and they say you know my parents didn't have enough when I look back I know my parents were poor and yet we mm. never felt poor and it's mm. and it's sort of it's like what can you do with so little you know and those moments when you're traveling as well as as a young adult and you know you just you just live on a baguette or a bit of cheese and then someone mm. might come to stay and they open a bag of figs or apricots and you just go oh my god this is the most incredible taste thank you so much and they're little moments that that resonate you know the taste of riches that's what it is and everything is you know can be so easy for some people you know not for others and it's and and we devour so much today mm. you know mm. we all do it we go out i'm just going to get my takeout get my takeout coffee i'm drinking my coffee i'm doing this and i do this and the coffee's gone and it's like sarah did you taste that coffee no mm. what a waste what no. an absolute mm. waste so it is about moments of 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 kindness with others and also tasting tasting really in a grounded way about um you know just how enriching food and drink can be yeah I, I couldn't agree more and the scene in tin man where with the apricots and the cheese and the priest brings this meal and they share this beautiful silent meal together it reminded me actually of traveling you know when you're on this crazy budget and you pull all your you know you buy a baguette and you might have a bit of cheese and you know apricots that are still warm um it really that really resonated with me and it re reminded me of those sorts of trips um and you're right yeah. like it, the simplicity of that meal was it was so much more than that wasn't it, it was just that gesture it was that that caring and nurturing through such sort of simple it was it was meal. but I mean it, it's also an erotic moment that particular moment you know Michael turns around and goes oh I've read this totally wrong I don't think he did the whole point that they they share oh. a glass they share the glass is share the glass they share the glass you know, there is something going on. Physically, it doesn't happen, but there is definitely something going on, you know. I found that so sad when Michael, you know, he didn't know if he read it right, you know, he thought there might have been a moment there and then he was like, oh, it's just my loneliness. Anyway, I thought that was... I think it is his loneliness. I mean, if there had been something that I would have written it, but I think it's that yeah. messed up moment. But, you know, he's also lived his gay life for a long time and I'm sure his, his radar is... is is pretty good um you know <laughs> but but it but it, but it, that's that's a slight thing i when i put that flavor of it, it, it is erotic it is erotic but erotic doesn't have to move into sexual in that way it's just something is there mm, um, mm. and that's why yeah, I, can, I, I wrote they shared a glass of wine you know they shared the glass rather it's I love that detail um and and speaking of sharing i um i wanted to ask you about that apartment in Florence which I just have such a vivid picture of in my mind um and Cressy's cooking and those meals the sort of all these various people had kind of come to that table and, and made it their home um what you know writing a meal is that a difficult thing to do in fiction like to bring all the people and 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 I guess it seems to it propels the story along so so well like it tells us so much in that one scene um yeah, I'd love to hear how you approach those sorts of things. Or does it just sort of evolve? No, it does evolve. You know, I think sometimes you can get bogged down with you. You might think that describing a meal in full, like Babette's feast, 
<laughs> you know, it's it's not necessarily going to work in a 450-page book. You have to choose the elements that still keep it going through and what is it to say. Is it the delight of cooking? Is it the delight of sitting down? So during the Mud Angel scenes where they've opened their home up, mm. it is about, you know, really looking after these young people as a, as a gesture of thanks. You know, that's another thing. So mm. it was that, you you know, sometimes I, I probably did write t- too much in, in some of the food sections mm. and the the editor was constantly going, oh, we have to get through here. So then then you take out the things that are interesting and that's going to be an addition. So how somebody mm. might have felt yeah. about eating that. The preparation, you know, there's another scene where they're preparing, you know, um, Peggy is 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 there with old Cress, and she's never um, she's never really prepared. She's never made pesto, um, in a, and in a book by Patience Gray, this fabulous food writer, she talks Honey about making. Wade. Oh, I love it. It's my favorite. I, I love me too. So she's, yeah, she talks about making pesto and actually how it's a cure for her um, for depression, not just the you know because she's using pestle and mortar, and I only use pestle and mortar because it it does. Mm. I find it's. It's um, if we don't always have time to do your meditation in the morning or just have a quiet moment, I try and do things manually because then that becomes the mindfulness or the meditation mm. in itself. Yeah. And that's what she says. So the continual pounding of, of these basil leaves until it, it, it gets some kind of consistency. And then, you know, with the parmesan and the garlic and the, and the salt. And, and she says it is the actual act of doing it, but it's the flavors that mm. waft up that also, mm. you know, uh, lighten the spirit or, or cherish the soul. And, and so that was important. So it was almost in that scene, the preparation of those, of um, Peggy doing that, the caress, was as important as what was to follow. So I think it's just working out what might be interesting at that stage of, you know, of the story. Um, and, I, and I was a little bit, a little bit, you know, some of the some of the food scenes or some of the dishes that I had originally put in were dishes that I would really like, and they were very varied. They were incredibly varied, and it's one of the things that Emiko talked to me about, and she said, "No, that that wouldn't have been there at that point." So, what yeah. Tuscan food was, or certainly the pasta within Tuscan food, it was it was very um, tomato based, so tomato sauce based. Mm. Um, passata, uh, sometimes uh, crudo, so raw tomatoes, but that was it. Um, there wasn't mm. too much greenery within a pasta, uh, you know, a, a kind of a pasta sauce at that time. And um, mm. always using tomato uh, bases for it isn't my favorite, I have to say. It's not my favorite. Ah, okay. So, so you know, some of those scenes were, were really paired back because I wasn't getting into it. You know, when I'm sitting there thinking about, oh, you know, things that make my mouth water, that, that's sort of how it goes. So I, maybe my focus would then go sort of somebody, somewhere else. Yeah, I can imagine. And, well, I guess back then in the sort of 50s and 60s, um, you know, that Tuscan food was, was really in its own bubble of, of whatever was available and affordable and all that kind of thing. You yeah. mentioned Patience Gray before. I, I really wanted to ask you, because um, I obviously think you write about food beautifully, who, who are your, who, what writers do you think do this well as well. I mean, not necessarily cookbook writers, but um, fiction writers who who put food in their books. Oh gosh, in a way that resonates with you, or even if they're just cookbook writers. Any, I'm just always oh, well, interested. No, I think in... Patience Gray is, is fabulous. My partner Pat's is uh, she's a food photographer, so I get to and does a lot of cookbooks. Ah, so she has yeah. um 
she photographs with Honey and Co. And I think Itmar, who does most oh, of the writing, not all, he just done, does some of the writing, but, but he, I think he's fabulous. Because of course, it's food, it, it is about memory. Food is about memory and place and people, you know, generally, uh, when, mm. when people are writing about food. And that, I think, plays out when, you know, when you think about so many displaced people today that have had to leave their homes um, and to find a home elsewhere. And sometimes when they're in, you know, holding place, which must be just interminably horrendous, you know, either in camps or, uh, you know, these makeshift camps, or I don't know, in, in certain, just in certain areas, but there will always be people cooking. Mm. There will always be people mm. cooking food of home to try and, for many reasons, I can't answer for them, but you get a feeling that it's to lift spirits, to remember how a relative who's not with you cooked it, to remember past times of feasting. And, that, and that's what food carries. The food has to have very broad shoulders, which it does, in order to carry these kind of memories. You know, there's, I saw the most beautiful film, and it's one of my films of the year, even though the year's not out, called Limbo. It is a stunning film about uh, refugees who are placed in, in a holding situation up on one of the islands in Scotland. That's why it's called Limbo, because one has waited three years for his asylum. You know, I mean, Australia has its own version, horrific version of all of that, too, yeah. which, mm -hmm. yeah, there's another place for that, another How talk around that. But, yeah. but there's a scene where this young man is on the phone and he's in a phone box. Um, and he's trying to, and he's talking to his mum, and he he asks for the recipe of a certain dish, and she said, oh, "But you know, I can't tell him my secret, you know, ingredient." He, he said, "You have to tell me," and then she told him, and I think it was Zata. And he and he's you know he's on he's on this island. There's one supermarket barely, and he needs to find this ingredient. And I'm not going to tell you the end, um, because I really do recommend that, oh, I'm that definitely people see, see this film. Mm. But what I mean is, is it's, it is what people go to, you know, it's just, mm. it's, it holds so much, you know, the memory of the land, the smell of the land, um, mm. the taste of the land. And, you know, it's, it's exciting and it's, it's emotional. Um, mm. And it's, and it, it is emotional. It is never without a response. That's the point, I think. Yeah. And I really think, like, if I asked you right now to tell me, you know, the, the best meals of your life, I don't think you would tell me chronologically what you ate from entree to dessert. You'd tell me how you felt, not how the meal made you feel. And, you know, yeah. and, and yes, you'd remember the, the, the food you ate, but it's more the whole um it's who you're with. It was the candles. It was the flower. Whatever it, it might is be, that. and I think it is know, that. It is, and so that's it is why emotional. Mm. It is emotional. Exactly that, Sophie. And and I always say to people when they go, "Oh, I, I don't really have dinner parties because I'm not good at cooking." And I, you know, I'm not really good at cooking. I just have my set things. But when I, we know a lot of people. We know a lot of chefs, and we know a lot of people who cook. My goodness, mm. no, I'm a shadow of that. But what I say to friends who don't, and they go, oh, "I really like it." I went, "You know what? People will never really." remember the food with great respect you know they will remember the company and the conversation and you know 
if, if you're if if people are drinking wine you know the slight tiddliness and and the flickering shadows and just what a great time of feasting and that's the point about feasting it is about bringing people around the table but mm-hmm. one of the the best times that I used to eat was um so my partner as I said she's a food photographer and in the early days so way back we've been together about 20 years so in those early early days those sort of first five years she was trying to get established and and I was nowhere near writing a book I was still kind of acting and not earning anything so so we were struggling financially we we were getting there we had a vision of what we wanted to do but we were struggling you know we didn't have much to our name put it like that um so we were very home-based a lot of the time and you know work out when when the cheap films was that that's it so I've set the scene um when she used to go and photograph restaurants they never many restaurants they never used to pay her money because restaurants also have trouble with their cash flow they used to pay in dinners and so she would organize um certain restaurants she'd go okay well my invoice is a dinner for four or a dinner for six or if it's a small one a dinner for two and that dinner would be (laughs) complete dinner and wine and we used to do that and there was a period of time where we were really, really, you know, struggling financially, and yet we ate like kings. Oh, and when it was like that. dinners for four or dinners for six, the best thing is we could then invite people who were in a similar situation. And of course, you're not you're not taking advantage of these restaurants with like loads and loads of booze, but yeah. but they absolutely provided everything for the most incredible meal. And there was none of this coming up to us on a wine list and and this pointing to the house. They were real, you know, they were just Aww. incredibly generous. And that was and and I remember those times, you know, because they they had there was so much beauty about that. Mm, I can imagine. I loved he- I love hearing that. I. I think being paid in meals is, is I mean, obviously you can't do it forever, but for a period of time. No, you can't do it forever, but, but there was, um, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, I'm so glad we had that. I'm really so glad we had that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Sarah, I, um, I feel like I could, I really would love to talk to you forever, but um, I know you're a very busy woman, but before I let you go, I hope you don't mind if What's I your ask question one question. from your book group? Or, well, I'll ask one because all four of them asked the same question, funnily enough. Okay. And they were like, so the Peggy and Ulysses the, yeah. was the reason that they didn't quite get together in the end because perhaps Ulysses was a little bit in love with the captain, the soldier um, from the very beginning. Who's I can't remember his name. He was in love with Don. They, they were. I mean, that that goes without saying. But I also think he did love Peg. No, they'd just done the on-off for so long. And then they realised that oh they were God. better off. You know, I think people, I think I this is love what, them both so much. <laughs> yeah, I do. I, I really do. I mean, I love writing them and they didn't bring out the best in each other as lovers, but my God, did they bring the best out in each other as friends and they will always mm. be there now. They will, they will grow old together in a way that maybe they wouldn't have had they stayed together because there was always, mm. there was just something missing in their sort of, you know, passionate or, or kind of coupled them that just didn't, mm. I don't know what it was. I think, well, maybe it was just that they weren't supposed to be there. They would, and they kept, they kept thinking that, that they were, that the intensity and the brilliance of their friendship would have translated into the other. And, and I think it just got to the point. And I think, especially after Crest died, 
they realized that that they were now taking over Cress's mantle for kind of almost a younger generation in a way. Mm. And they were going to carry on the goodness of him. And it just meant that that would mean there were different roles that they would have to play. That's how I always Mm. saw it. That they, that our whole idea, and I do believe there are moments and timing for relationships. And if then, Mm. and then not grasped, it just, it, it doesn't happen. And of course, war came and this happens to a lot of people you know war the second world war interrupted people and people's Mm -hmm. lives or people's jobs or people's dreams in a way that i don't think we can possibly imagine that people came back and they tried to try to 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 keep going or, or pick up and some people managed it but that was still for many people six years of their life and they would have been young you know they would have been young people um at that stage so um yeah, I, I think yeah. it's a positive thing that I didn't bring them together. I know it's it has been contentious, but I've I've never regretted it. I think I think what was to come, and no, I think there were you know if we look, there is a relationship for Ulysses to come, and I don't know if that would be. I, I my feeling is it would probably be a, a woman to come, maybe an older woman, um, because I think also he would be quite happy just bumbling around with Massimo in the pensione as well. Now that they're all living together, you know, I think. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I don't see him. Didn't see him. I think it was the, the main love affair I saw was was with Darnley, and I didn't sort of see beyond that really. Mm, mm. Well, thank you for answering that question. And I think that it, it is well, because one of the things that I love so much about still life is that it is about friendship and love between friends and how special that is. And um, so that makes sense that. Um, yeah, that Peggy and Ulysses were just destined to become the, the very best of friends and look after each other in that way. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for speaking with me uh, for something to eat and something to read. And um, yeah, thank you for your books because they've given us much, much joy. And um, I'll let you get on with your day. Uh, That's okay. Yeah, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's been so great. Sophie and Sarah, I loved um, hearing Sarah's take on how she writes and how uh, Still Life came into being. Mm. And I loved that um, the whole theatre of food and how she describes it as acts of love, all the things that we saw in that too, um, weren't they, Sophie? The um, Emiko just posted the other day that I think just last weekend was the anniversary of the flood in Florence that is such a crucial mm. part of the story. So, yeah, all our timing was Spot on. <laughs> it must be meant to be. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I love that uh, you interviewed the author and I interviewed the food writer and, you know, I think we, we look at these things through such different lenses, which is what makes this so such a passion project for us, I guess, as well as such a different way to think mm. about food and writing. And um, I so enjoyed talking to Emiko about uh, how stories and memories for her are all wrapped up in the meals she cooks and, and, and how much that knowledge about Tuscan cuisine, actually Italian cuisine in general, um, really helped Sarah uh, really get an accurate portrayal of, of life and food and culture in Italy during all those different decades. So I hope everyone enjoys 
um, hearing from Emiko and hearing about her life in Italy and um, also how she came to become Sarah's food consultant on this wonderful book. Yeah, thanks, Jermaine. It's a great chat. And I love that you asked so many questions that I wouldn't have thought to actually ask Emiko and it takes the conversation in such an interesting direction. So, um, yeah, I know everyone's going to love this chat as well. Okay, thank you so much for joining us and being part of another episode of this new podcast, Something to Eat and Something to Read. We're wanting to talk more about food and food writing. And I know from what I've read about you that you've lived in countries all over the world all your life. Um, and I'm wondering if it's actually food that connects you to place and family and childhood more than um, houses or countries absolutely I mean I, I um, live I live now in Italy and um, my Italian husband who has lived here in the same place um, his whole life <laughs> uh, he, he um, has trouble understanding you know how I how I can just get up and and go and I'm I would be you know if, if he said to me let's go and move somewhere tomorrow I could just I could do that um but the way the way I look at it is like Italians have got really they're like a tree with really really deep roots and mm. I'm just sort of floating around and I can go from place to place and, and I and I don't have a home that I've always grown up in like like he does and um we moved around every you know number of years moved back and forth between Australia and China and then um, I went off to America and and it's funny but I, I think that you are right that food is sort of one of the main things in my memory mm. <laughs> um, more than yeah more than a geographical place or more than um, a home um, when I say I'm, I'm going home I'm not really like going to the actual same same building, you know, that I that I lived in um, ever. So, um, yeah, for me, food has a really strong memory. It's it's what reminds me of a home, um, really more than more than anything else. So, if I did say to you, um, when you go home, what food memory comes up straight away of as soon as I get home? that's when I know I'll be home um as soon as I get home usually my my mum who is Japanese um mm -hmm. when we when we get to visit her which um I don't know when that will be next but um what she normally does is she prepares um sort of a big um a temaki which is like a a sort of a, a DIY sushi um oh, yeah. dinner where you'll have like a big a big sort of shared plate of all the fish all the fillings you know um mm -hmm. sort of in you know on a big platter and then a big bowl of rice and um little squares of seaweed all cut up all ready to go and you just you just fill them as you go they're called temaki because tem means hand so you put them in your hand right. and roll them yourself eat them sort of individually and uh that's one of the things i look forward to most um when i go home is is eating things like that 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 my mum cooks and I realised that 
when I cook Japanese food also for my for my girls who, who love Japanese food and it's not something we find easily mm. um, here in, in Tuscany um, but yeah th those flavors for me are really what what tastes like home what they remind me of my mum and bring so brings up childhood puts you back in yeah. that being looked after childhood place exactly yeah so as um you probably know well Sophie and I now feel like we're discovering more and more how food um gives us backstories and and subtext to characters in books or in fiction particularly as well as kind of creating an atmosphere or a setting without the author having to write what the atmosphere or setting is and, and so it's sort of a new way for me to look at writing and story. But I'm thinking you probably have always looked at stories through the lens of food, have you? Um, it, it's funny, but I used to be a really voracious reader, reader when I was when I was younger, and um, I realised I don't have a lot of time for that anymore with my kids, and I've stopped reading. But when you emailed me, I, I went I sort of went back in my memory to sort of think of what were my favourite books when I was. Um, a teenager in particular when I was a teenager um, what were the books that I was really reading and um, and even when I was at, at, at university I was reading a lot and um, I was trying to sort of connect the dots going backwards in my mind you know mm. and um, my, one of the I think one of the very first books that I fell in love with was Like Water for Chocolate. Ah uh, yeah. I, I was about I must have been about 14 or so when I when I read it and um, that was immediately became one of my most favorite books. And I don't know if 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 you or the other readers know it, um, but it is it's a it's a very sort of powerful love story, and it's written in chapters that go through the months of the year, and each chapter starts with a recipe, mm. and it's not a recipe book at all, but the recipe. Um, has something to do with the actions that are, the things that are happening and it's yes, a very sort yeah. of um, mystical story but um, you know where she's making the rose a dish I think it's quail or something with rose petals and then everybody um, sort of gets affected by her or when yeah, she's, she's making wedding cake and crying while she's making wedding cake everyone gets yeah. really violently ill that was she puts the um, emotions into the cooking doesn't she Yes, and yeah. that, that has always stuck in my mind, and I really, really love that that book. And then um, my other favorite books later, um, I think more when I was in, in university, were um, A Hundred Years of Solitude and Love in the Time of Cholera. I loved Gabriel Garcia Marquez, and mm. um, I read almost everything I could read of his. And um, also I realized that his books too are... Um, full of food uh, in, in many different forms. Um, but there are, there are some really, really important food analogies and food is a really, really important part of each of the characters. Right. Actually, I do think thinking about it now that they're quite, yeah, as, as you said, you know, you can talk about somebody's um, food preferences or their food memories and immediately, um, there's a story you know, mm. about that. Um, yeah, there's a character in one of his books, for example, who only eats, she's an orphan and she only eats dirt and whitewash. Um. And that's like her sort of, her, her, her secret food that she goes back to is like eating, eating whitewash. 
Well, um, it just that creates was... such a picture of her straight yeah. away, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. In Love with the Time of Cholera, there's someone who hates eggplant. She's the, the main character hates eggplant. And there's a, like in the, in the marriage proposal, she says, yeah. Very well, I'll marry you, but only if you don't make me eat eggplant. <laughs> and then there's all these eggplant, re- you know, references throughout the book. I, I think that um, I do. I, I mean, I've always loved, um, I've always loved food and and, and eating. It, well, well before I was a food writer, I even knew that food writing was a, was a job. Um, but I have always enjoyed reading about food. Um, yeah, right. Because I love food. <laughs> it's interesting, isn't it? Because you went, you graduated from art college and ended up in Italy. Um, because you were going to art restoration is that is that right yes <laughs> yeah yeah and, and how did then food become the career well I um so I, I had I got my degree in fine art and then and and that's how I found Florence actually was because I came my third year and, and, and did a semester in Florence and um and I just thought this was this is the place I belong and I need to come back here. And so I came back again to study art restoration and, um, and did a three-year degree in that and then um, started working as a restorer in a photography museum. Mm. Um, but it wasn't enough to, uh, unfortunately, it's not a very well-paid job. And <laughs> it was really not, not enough to make a living on. I couldn't, we had to move in with my mother-in-law and um, to right. save on the rent. And, you know, this was, I was like, this isn't, this isn't yeah. working out. I can't pay the rent in Florence like this. So um, I, I got another, I got another job, but it was incredibly boring. And I was just sitting at a desk writing emails and um, I just needed something more joyful to do mm-hmm. <laughs> and something to look forward to um really just be like a creative outlet for me so I, I started a food blog because those were the things that oh, I okay. I thought what, what are the things that make me happy I just need something to, I can like is really going to you know help me get through the day yes. and and the things that I loved were taking photos and um food and writing about what sort of food adventures we'd been having and that's how my food blog started and that was 10 years ago and I um actually nearly 11 and I I really just started that simply for me because I just needed that Joy. outlet yes <laughs> yes all the things I love um in one place and I was like who you know well also in, in that time I was like who's reading this blog I have no idea how people are you know going to read it mm. but um, that really didn't matter at the time I just wanted something for myself something so like I could record even for myself and look back on and you know oh there was that recipe that I'd you know done and I really wanted to remember that and then I could go back to my own blog and it makes sense when we think yeah Yeah. it makes sense and think about um food memories being like photo albums for you yes yeah exactly that was a almost like a journal perhaps or a diary yeah it was it was and I, I kept it um very was on a schedule like I wrote a weekly post um every week I I didn't miss one for years (laughs) um and uh and that that uh, really grew and I discovered that that I really really loved doing and then I sort of that was around the time I I realized oh that there are food blogs and there are food writers and maybe I could write about food um as a as a job you know I didn't yeah. know before that that was something that people did really so 
um, that's how that started. I kind of, I kind of fell into it, and um, I think it was a case of being, being in the right place at the right time. And um, uh, somebody, I got asked by Food Fifty Two to write, start a column about Italian food because right. around then I, I do think there was a real lack of um, knowledge about regional Italian food. And uh -huh. so that's what I was trying to write about on my on my blog, and yeah, that's how it, that's how it all got started. Wow! And so is that what um, led you to Sarah Winman? I um, just this, that's come up because Sophie and I talked in an episode about Tin Man, and from and just how she and it's funny because Sophie recognized she was drawn to the food in Tin Man, and on my first reading. I hadn't really noticed it. I'd noticed a lot more about the love story and the words, funnily enough, that were shared between the characters. And when I reread it with that in mind, I was struck by how often food was used as a way of showing love or showing care. And um, then we both read Still Life and obviously um, food played a huge part as or being set or you know being set in Italy and and that's then what made Sophie tell me that you were acting as a food consultant for Sarah on that book and helping her out so I'd love to hear I didn't know that job existed so I'd love to hear more about that well I had I had met Sarah um when she was on her research trip visits um because she'd visited Florence many many times and um uh, in sort of setting the scenes and writing about, you know, very specifically all of the, you know, the, the sort of the map of Florence, I want to say the map, the descriptions of Florence that she writes about are, are all very accurate because she was there, you know, um, yeah. researching it and living it and staying in, in Piazza Santo Spirito and, um, <clears throat> and absorbing all of that for the book. And um, in fact, I'm, I'm quite proud because when I read it the first time, I was like, oh, I know all of these places that mm. she's talking about. And she's talking about visiting Settignano. And that's where when she came to visit me and um, I was living up uh, on the on the hilltop um, to the east of Florence. It's only 10 minutes from the historical centre and um, and it's still a neighbourhood of Florence. But a lot of people sort of forget about it because it's on a hill yeah. and um, it's a little town of well, it's a little neighbourhood of Settignano, um, which is sort of up amongst olive groves and it it does sort of feel like you've taken a holiday even though you're only 10 minutes wow. away um, and Sarah came to visit me many years ago um, up there and I, I took her around we walked around and we had, we had a meal together we were talking about food and talking about Italy and and, and all sorts of things um, and we kept in touch after that and um, met up when we could um, on, her, on some of her other visits and yeah, and then last year, when we had just gone into a, a second sort of lockdown situation, I got mm -hmm. an email from Sarah asking, uh, you know, would I, <laughs> would I mind reading through her new manuscript with, um, you know, sort of just as a consultant, like making sure all the all the Florentine bits sounded, you know, Florentine and the mm -hmm. Italian language sounded. Italian and the food if that sounded right and um just sort of checking it you know and and I um I, I leapt 
at the email like absolutely I would love to do that and we, I mean it was just like the perfect timing as well because we had just gone into this sort of lockdown situation and um, you were home so, you know, we were home I was at home actually I was at my mother-in-law's house because we were renovating um, our other home and we had just moved from from Florence and so we were yeah it was just sort of perfect perfect timing and I would have done it anyway even if it wasn't perfect timing yeah. I would have said sure I'm going to find a way to do this um, and when she described what it was about you know that was the book and I've, I've you know written about Florence and over these over this time period and and sort of the, the historical aspect really 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 interested me a, a lot because that's something that I um I have always been interested in the history and um, food history as well. And so, uh, yeah, it was a joy. I, I got to read through, I think she sent me like 650 pages. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I had, you know, I had a timeline to, to obviously to, to, to stick to. So I just like locked myself in the attic and and read uh, for hours. Oh, and just got lost in the story of all yeah. those wonderful characters. But what kinds of things did you pick up that... Um, or you know in, in what way did um, you help for me I think um, the biggest things that I that I picked up that I just you know made suggestions to Sarah for and 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 obviously I was like you know this is her story she can keep it the way she wants but if she, yeah. you know, just in case you know if she wants to if she wants to make it a little bit more accurate you know this is probably what they would have been eating in Florence in the 40s and the 50s uh -huh or in the 60s rather than some of the dishes that she had she had put into the story uh -huh. um, which I know you can find in Florence now but um, even I would say even even 15 even 25 years ago or more were unheard of wow. and um, and it was interesting because I, I don't think a lot of people know about this. And, and really the only reason I know about it is because I was, um, when I wrote Tortellini at Midnight, which is the sort of the book about my uh, Marco's family recipes and his family history. And when I wrote that book, I, I really delved into um, all of the stories. I was, you know, sort of recording and listening and documenting all of my mother-in-law's stories about food and her parents who are no longer alive, but her father was from Puglia in Southern Italy. And um, she's never be, even been to Puglia. She's, you know, mm. Tuscan or born and born in the same house that she's still living in, oh, you know, wow. very, wow. very Tuscan family. But because her father was, was Pugliese and her grandfather owned um, a little um, an alimentari which is sort of a little um, a little shop that sells you know like deli like a deli yeah a deli and a bar basically they were able to get things in that that, that other Tuscans had never even seen or heard of before uh -huh. so certain types of cheeses um, yeah. certain vegetables you know um, these sort of things so she she rem I remember her telling me about this where she had um, uh, brought uh she brought and cooked an eggplant parmigiana and this is one of the examples that sarah had put in the book there her characters were enjoying an eggplant parmigiana yep. uh which is a dish that you i think you find all over italy now because it's very um it's loved it's like pizza you can find mm. pizza mm -hmm. now um but uh 
it, it is actually a southern Italian dish, so it doesn't at all come from Tuscany. Eggplants don't come from Tuscany. Um, even now, I think most of the eggplants, I mean, unless you've grown them in your garden, um, they probably come from southern Italy. Yeah. And um, so um, my mother-in-law said that once she baked it once in the 70s for her friends to take to a picnic. Yeah. And... Um, took this tray of, of eggplant parmigiana. No one had ever seen it or heard of it. Never did not know what it was. It was like this exotic, um, yeah. you know, incredible dish that um, had never been had never been heard yeah. of. In and the same with um, uh, like um, capsicum. That was another okay. dish that or another vegetable that really was not very well known in, in Tuscany. Um, my mother-in-law was a professor and she, she took a dish of capsicum to uh, a meeting in Pisa and yep. um, she said nobody touched the peppers. <laughs> she <laughs> nobody touched the peppers because they didn't know um, what, yeah, what, what they were. This <laughs> is like dangerous so we're not going to eat them just in case they're poisonous. And that was in the 80s. So Wow. Um, there were things like this that um, that came up in the book, and I just thought, you know, um, yeah. I'll just mention to Sarah that these maybe she could replace these dishes with yes, yeah, um, things that are much more Florentine. That, that's that reminder, isn't it, about how um, different regions of Italy have such their own food identity, don't they? That it's not a whole. You don't say just it's Italian. It's either Tuscan or it's Southern or Absolutely. And, and one vegetable that you find here, um, you know, you won't necessarily find used in lots of dishes in, in the north or in the south. So Tuscany is quite, quite particular. So I just, I would give her in the comments, you know, put little yep. comments in the margins, maybe you could try, you know, this dish or that dish or like fennel uh -huh. or you know, spinach. Those yeah. are really Florentine artichokes, you know, depending on what the season was. Um, I would make these little suggestions so that you know, I'm sure that a lot of people would have not even noticed that as they were reading. They wouldn't be sitting there going, oh, eggplant parmigiana, that wouldn't be, you know. But, <laughs> but you know, I think that um, having those things accurate anyway is um, yeah, is always a, a good idea, even if, even if you didn't know um, the dishes that uh, she then replaced them with were things that were more Florentine. It, and it gives that depth to the character, doesn't it? Like I'm thinking of your mother-in-law was obviously quite a trailblazer professionally. She was a professor yeah. as well as she was game to try these bizarre um, different <laughs> vegetables and, yeah. Yeah, I mean, for her, like the exotic dish that they would make when guests came over for, for dinner was, was meatballs, um, yeah. which sounds uh, absurd, you know, to, to say that about like an, an Italian family. This is the dish that no one's ever tried before. But in Tuscany, meatballs are, are not not um, not a thing. And yeah. so, mm -hmm. but this was her grandmother's recipe from Puglia. So this is the, yeah. the dish that her father had grown up with. So, you know, meatballs was the dish that they made um, when, when they had people over just to sort of surprise and delight them, you know, with something new. <laughs> and... and um, uh, yeah, and especially I think in the 40s and the 50s in particular, there were there were um, there was really a sort of limited availability of, mm. of what kind of food was around, and it would have all been very very local. 
And so, right. you know, the things I tried to mention are things that were, um, you know, well known in Tuscany, you know, even in the Renaissance. Um, yes, right. People wrote about them and talked about them and painted them. And so, you know, there, there are certain foods that are, um, uh, you know, very Florentine and would have would have definitely been more present than than eggplants, for example. <laughs> do you think um, you would have been able to do that work without having done your own family story through the you know, Tortellini at Midnight? I think that I I definitely wouldn't have been as much in tune with mm-hmm. with some of those references after. Um, you know, a lot of that I, I really I, I realized when I was writing the book because because it is in chapters of Puglia mm. and then um, Turin in the north and then Tuscany, yeah. which is so it's like the 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 very like heel of the of the yes. boot and then the very very top of the boot and in the middle. So I do sort of go um, these like long long lengths um, and and very specific regions in that book, um, but I I think that. Um, I think that that definitely helped having already written about the family and and also because um, in that book I was writing as well on a time so in place but also in a timeline mm. so the first chapter is sort of around World War One and the second chapter on Tuscany is World War Two and then so it it's I mean it's not specifically the recipes are specifically from a timeline but the stories come from a from a particular timeline and yeah. so. Yes, there were stories about the kind of dishes that they ate um, just, you know, in the 50s, so shortly after the war had finished and, um, you know, in the 50s they were able to get gelato, for example, but there were only two flavours. You couldn't go to a gelateria and find, like, wow. you know, <laughs> this whole smorgasbord of flavours. There were two. There was yep. chocolate and there was crema, and which is like the <laughs> plain custard. Yep. That was it. There were no, there was nothing else, you know, and that was in the 50s. or um, yeah, these other sort of things. I tried to, so I tried to include Lovely, um, yeah. some of those references uh, for Sarah too. Yeah, because yeah, it creates the atmosphere, doesn't it? And I think the food is um, inseparable from that in your writing as well, isn't it? I noticed Nigella wants to just linger cosily <laughs> with your book. <laughs> and um, and the other comment I really liked was Deborah Feldman's comment about um your writing being transportative to you know it takes all your uses all your senses um and I think that's the very best writing of anything to to feel that all your senses are engaged with story um so yeah it's obviously always the way you've written as well is it (laughs) thank you um yeah I think having come from an art background I, I am you know, a very, a, a sort of a more, I don't know, a sensitive person, I'm, I'm very um, visual. And I, yeah, I like to describe things, not just, um, not just in one way, you know, there's many ways to, to experience yeah. food. Um, the, the smell, the sound, the sound of food mm. is something we don't often talk about, you know, but food makes wonderful sounds when you're yeah. cooking and when you're yeah. eating, you know, so yeah I do like I do think that um using your senses is is um a way to bring people into the writing yeah so just to finish off knowing it's your birthday today I'd love um for you to tell us a story that just using the senses and food is means birthday to you 
um, maybe not my birthday because I don't really, I mean, I don't have any plans special for today. <laughs> and I, I think once you turn, I'm, you know, once you turn a certain age, I'm 41 <laughs> today. I'm like, I don't need to count these anymore or, or really celebrate them. But um, for me, for me, when it's, when it is someone else's birthday, mm-hmm. though, um, one of the things that I, I always try to do is bake them a birthday cake whether it's my my daughters or my husband who doesn't even like cake uh, we still bake <laughs> we still bake a birthday cake and i think partly it's because without a birthday cake it feels you know a cake to sort of have candles yep. on and pour them out it it doesn't feel like the birthday has been celebrated yeah for me uh-huh. um even if i'm celebrating it for somebody else it's like they they need to have the cake with the candles yes. on it um and for me that or that has to be a homemade cake. It can't yeah. be mm-hmm. a cake. Always homemade. When the girls were big enough, I would get them involved in making the cake as well, um, which they've, they've done since they were very little. So I would get them to, you know, mix the eggs together and yeah. um, add in add in the flour or whatever. The kitchen would be mm. a bomb site afterwards. But it was just, <laughs> it was all part of the, you know, I think that making a birthday cake for somebody is, is a, like the, a really an act of love yeah. for that person and I also grew up with the um you know the woman's weekly cookbook birthday cakes which I have a, a copy of you know and I love those because my grandmother used to make those cakes she would get you to you know pick one out of yeah. here which one do you want you know and then choose the cake and it was always such a delight to see that cake from the pages that you saw and picked, yeah. you know come to life and it was just suddenly there I remember that feeling of uh, you know seeing the cake exactly like it was in the I mean I don't remember if it was exactly like but to yeah me, it, it looked like, it looks close it enough looked just hey? like in the book and um and that was that was just always I just remember that being very exciting and very um yeah. just made me really happy you know and I think that is that's one of the reasons why I always insist on baking birthday cakes for my loved ones. Yeah, lovely. Um, yeah, I don't know if I didn't really use many of my senses just now, but I think I was just trying to get across this idea of the, the home. That's right, the, the preparation, the making of it, and then the putting the candles on and blowing them out. I think you have got all the sounds and smells and feels and everything there <laughs> well, for, for example that uh, when we went into lockdown last year in um march 2020 and my husband marco's birthday was short was just days after we went into lockdown mm. and you know so we weren't going to go anywhere there was no nothing we could do we were just sitting at home it was all very confusing at the time as well i mean it's just very it was very you know just a few days into the very first lockdown and it um we were just trying to, you know, sort of figure out what what are we yes. doing, what's happening, you know. Um, and we just spent the day making a birthday cake for, for Marco with the girls and uh, they blew out the candles for him. And, <laughs> you know, we sang happy birthday and had the candles. I mean, it was just, it still just felt so special, even Lovely. though we were in this, um, you know, very, very strange time just a few days into the, the yeah. lockdown. Um, but having the girls do that, I think, was a great distraction for them. They, they, you know, they yeah. love they love celebrating. So um, for Luna, who's who's three, she's 
you know, she just needs to see a party hat and a candle. And, and she's like, your birthday is happening. <laughs> <laughs> Where's the cake? <laughs> oh, well, I hope someone makes a cake for you today or you get a slice of cake somewhere. Thank you so much for talking to me and all, all those wonderful stories about food and, and people. Thank you so much for having me. It's been such a pleasure. Thanks, Jermaine. Thanks, Emiko. Also, Emiko's new book um, on Venetian cuisine, it's her fourth actually, is out I think any minute now. So definitely go and check her out. We're going to put all the links to the show notes um, in our newsletter. And I think there might even be a special recipe um, that ties in very, very closely Mm. to the book um, that Emiko and Sarah (laughs) are sharing. So I can't wait for that. So be sure to sign up to our newsletter. You can do that um, by the show notes. Just click click that link and you can get all the news delivered straight to your inbox. And next episode, we'll be back with our usual format. And the book we're going to be discussing is Christmas Days, 12 Stories and 12 Feasts for 12 Days by Jeanette Winterson. I have loved this book um, and been reading it for the last few Christmases and I can't wait to hear what Sophie makes of it. It seemed the perfect uh, combination for this podcast with 12 stories for me and 12 recipes for Sophie. Or maybe that will be the other way around. <laughs> no, well, I'm uh, loving it too, actually. I'm only halfway through, I have to say. And you did not, you could have given me a heads up about the ghost story that has really <laughs> um, stayed with me. I was not expecting that. It was excellent, but super spooky. Um, but the rest of it is, I mean, I'm, I loved it, but it's some great recipes. It's just yeah. beautiful. And I learned a lot actually about um, the history of Christmas in her introduction. So yeah, it's a fabulous book. I'm really, really enjoying it. So also if you're wanting to read along with us, don't forget that we've got all the book lists on our Instagram page, which is at something to eat underscore something to read and in the newsletter. And then the one after that is light, the light years, which I'm rereading in preparation for our record soon. Mm. Oh, I just love that book so much. So I can't wait to talk about that. Oh, and in I know, fact, that's a real comfort read. It, it is. And a lot of the food in it um, is for big groups and feastings. And I think it's getting, getting me thinking about mm. some Christmas lunches that I'm hoping to plan. So anyway, lots to talk about in the upcoming episodes. But thank you for joining us for this very special, um, very short, well, short from us episode um thanks sarah thanks emiko to our producer christy thank you so much for putting this together so beautifully and smith and jones are musicians for this episode thank you as well and we'll be back in your ears in a couple of weeks with christmas yay okay thanks guys Sometimes I get to thinking I ought to take up drinking Just to drown out all these memories Maybe I could down a whiskey bottle And head out on the highway Just to see if it'll bring some peace But I ain't a drinking girl I'm just a small town woman trying to find my way in a lonesome world and i ain't a whiskey girl i'm just a 
Small town woman trying to walk a straight line in a crooked world. Sometimes when I wake up in the morning, my mind it starts a wandering, wanting to roam. I get to thinking about that man. I wonder if he's headed south again, or maybe I'll follow where that booted baby led. But I am a wandering girl. I'm just a small town woman trying to find my way in a lonesome world. And I am a southbound girl. Just a small town lady trying to walk a straight line in a crooked Thank you. 